My name is Barbara Iverson, and I am the moderator today for the dialogue. I'm an expert in interpersonal skills based in Berlin. In addition to the international sign interpretation as part of our dialogue today, all of us appearing on camera will be giving a short description of ourselves for those participating who are visually impaired. I am a white woman with medium length wavy blonde hair and I'm wearing a black shirt. With this series, we want to continue challenging the civil society sector with inspiring conversations based on the constant change that digitalization brings to our societies. Each discussion will be a call to action for SCOs to take a more active role in shaping our digital future. So today, we are putting a spotlight on legitimate self-defense civil society digital surveillance. So I'm pleased to introduce Francesca Bosco from Cyber Peace Institute, who's currently in Geneva, and Matt Mahmoudi from Amnesty International is coming to us from Copenhagen. So we're looking forward to what they'll be sharing with us today. And now we're gonna take a few minutes to um, have them share a little bit more about who they are and what they're doing um, in this topic related field. So hi, Francesca. Thank you so much, Barbara. And thanks so much to um, all people that are joining us today. I'm Francesca Bosco from the Cyberpeace Institute connecting from Geneva, Switzerland. I'm white, uh, long brown hair, wearing a black shirt and a black jacket. Um, the Cyberpeace Institute is an NGO whose mission is to reduce the harm from cyber attacks on people's lives worldwide, starting from the most vulnerable. And the first question that we ask ourselves is who are the most vulnerable? And one of the main focus of the work of the Institute has been to support the critical actors in our society, NGOs, so other civil society organizations. In fact, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, including humanitarian, and development organizations make a vital contribution to humanity because they assist and protect the people around the globe. At the same time, unfortunately, also because um, the digital transformation process that is indeed enabling them in further their, in further enhance basically their activities, it's also um, kind of like representing a danger for the organization themselves, but also for their beneficiaries, their donors, and potentially their extended network of partners. Um, why they are interesting targets? Well, they are interesting targets because of the work they do, um, also in highly sensitive contexts, in time of peace and in time of war. Um, they are interesting because of the funds that they manage, the sensitive data that they're hosting and processing. These organizations are providing critical services to populations and vulnerable communities as well. Um, I would like to share briefly some observations out of the work related to collecting, analyzing attacks against the civil society organization and also assisting them. Um, some trends that we have observed at the Cyberpeace Institute is that in the, I would say that in the last three years, cyber criminals and state actors have access to systems and personal records, stolen millions of dollars of donations, 
carried out surveillance operations and led misinformation and disinformation campaigns, specifically targeting NGOs. Um, we, we observed attacks. I mean, the data that, that I'm presenting today are kind of like partial and out of the observation that we did between July 2020 and June 2022. And the cyber pieces recorded at least 157 cases of cyber incidents specifically impacting the nonprofit sector for which data uh, was publicly available. Um, I would also open a parenthesis before I mentioned specifically in time of peace and in times of war, because one of our publicly available platform is the platform that is monitoring the attacks against the civilian infrastructure and civilian objects in the context of the conflict in Ukraine. And out of this, if you can search it yourself, and we have, for example, recorded the two specific cases of attacks against civil society organizations, um, both um, from March this year, one specifically on credential phishing campaigns um, against multiple US-based NGOs. Um, basically, somebody was impersonating military personnel to extort money for rescuing relatives in Ukraine. And another specific campaign of malware attacks against NGOs by which Amazon uh, reported seeing several situations where malware has been specifically targeted at charities, NGOs, and other aid organizations in order to spread confusion and, and cause a disruption. Um, I'm mentioning this because out of, let's say, I think that one important aspect is trying to understand that clearly what's happening in cyberspace has a physical impact, again, both in times of like peace and unfortunately in this case in times of war and also one other um, let's say trend that we have observed is that in addition to the additional cybersecurity challenges like malware phishing ransomware password attacks ngos are often targeted by offensive cyber capabilities such as spyware and Unfortunately, pretty famous is uh, the NSO groups, Pegasus spyware, uh, that basically can turn any affected smartphone into a remote microphone and camera, spying on its own owner, while also offering to the hacker, um, usually in the forms of like state intelligence, or I mean, unfortunately, um, rock law enforcement agencies, full access to files, messages, and of course, the user's location. Um, we have, I mean, the, the, the pretty famous uh, um, NSO group Pegasus uh, um, case um, dated back um, almost to August uh, 2016, when researchers at the Citizen Lab discovered um, this type of spyware deployed to target the device of Hamed Mansour, a prominent UAE-based human rights defender. And after that, many other civil society organizations, human rights activists and journalists were targeted. Um, I would like to share briefly, um, after the sort of like setting the scene, also a couple of considerations when it comes to um, civil society preparedness and what we can do about it, let's say collectively, um, how we can uh, um, basically improve the current situation. Um, in terms of preparedness, uh, um, again, out of the data that we have observed and collected, but also 
um, thanks to our program, I will um, tell you a little bit more about it right after, um, by which we assist civil society organizations, um, we were able to um, have a sort of like quick mapping and understanding of the level of preparedness and also which are the main challenges that civil society organizations are facing. So first of all, um, the cybersecurity posture and overall vulnerability remains a problem. So very few NGOs have completed, for example, general security that have completed a general security assessment, um, have a, for example, cyber insurance or um, have two factor authentications activated and implemented throughout all their platform. Or for example, they have a limited um, incident response plan that is not always reviewed and updated. Challenges in terms of financial and human resources are definitely one of the main kind of like um, factor for vulnerability. Um, what we can do, um, I'm just sharing with you a couple of like food for thoughts also for our discussion. So on one hand, we need to um, enhance awareness and understanding. So thanks, for example, to dialogue like the one of today. So and we need to do this uh, collaborating with other actors. Practical example, we developed, we supported in the development of the digital violence platform together with the forensic architecture, Amnesty and the Citizen Lab. So to show basically visualize the impact of and documenting the different cases of NSO's operations. Um, let's say uh, at, with our own capabilities, we processed uh, more than 100 requests of detection of Pegasus within International Geneva during the Pegasus project. And we called with other organization, um, together with Amnesty, Human Rights Watch and Access Now, an international call for a monitorium to limiting the sale, transfer, and the use of abuses power. Is it enough? No. We assist the civil society organization to, thanks to our Cyber Peace Builders program, by which we support the civil society organization in enhancing their cybersecurity posture and capabilities. I leave it here, and um, I'm happy to uh, further the discussion afterwards. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Francesca. Yeah, we'll keep. We'll come back to this um, because I know that you. Uh, kept that you have plenty more examples to talk about. So we'll come back to it. And um, then I will ask Matt and give us a short description of what you look like and then share about uh, who you are and the perspective of Amnesty International. Hi, Matt. Hi, Barb. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Matt Mahmoudi. I am a brown man with uh, medium long hair and uh, very large glasses. Uh, and I hail from Amnesty's Technology and Human Rights Program, uh, where I am an artificial, uh, I am a researcher uh, and advisor on artificial intelligence and human rights. Um, in my everyday, I head up our work on banning facial recognition technologies globally, and have tended to focus on the ways in which facial recognition technologies in particular affect uh, protesters um, who are attempting to exercise their right to freedom of assembly and expression, and how it affects in particular historically marginalized communities, including racialized communities who are working on racial justice. So amongst other things, I've been uh, leading up our, our work together with our grassroots uh, partner organizations in New York City uh, on banning facial recognition in the city and exposing the ways in which the NYPD has used um, surveillance, in particular facial recognition, 
recognition uh, against Black Lives Matter protesters uh, to harass them in often unwarranted uh, and potentially uh, unlawful ways uh, and to really hold them to account on the usage of this technology, which Amnesty believes by design is considered uh, in violation of your, your very basic rights, um, including your rights uh, to uh, equality and non-discrimination in the way that the technology is often applied in biased ways, uh, and also in terms of your right to privacy, because the technology, for those of you who don't know, uh, depends on the curation of a large database of images without people's knowledge and consent, often scraped from, for example, social media or people's uh, driver's licenses or other government databases. Uh, and this database is, in fact, crucial in order for the facial recognition software to be able to operate. And so without that database, it doesn't work. And because that database is necessary for the design of the technology, uh, we believe it's a violation of people's right to privacy. And therefore, again, the technology is incompatible with your right to privacy. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, given the ways in which these technologies are often applied in context of protests, they're also uh, risking affecting uh, a chilling effect, uh, which if, which leads to people uh, who believe they are subject to surveillance being less likely to exercise their basic right to protest uh, because of fear of surveillance. And today I'm going to talk a, a little bit about um, the New York City context and I'm going to show a few slides. A part of what I'm trying to show here is how, whilst NGOs have been historically focused on uh, uh, publishing stories around how facial recognition has been used uh, and and other you know similar uh, tools have been used in often egregious ways. Uh, the ways in which we are sort of missing bringing people along with us is often rooted in, for example, uh, not paying as much attention to bringing the audience in with us in the process of actually generating the research. So part of what Amnesty has done in this instance is actually try and uh, develop a project, a campaign around the co-production of the research around facial recognition in the first place uh, with the communities that we were advocating with. So uh, the example involves the case of Derek Ingram, who was a Black Lives Matter protester who uh, had been out protesting in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, he was subsequently um, uh, uh, sort of harassed by the police, uh, in particular by the NYPD, who showed up at his door and harassed him for four hours without being able to produce a warrant. Uh, and a journalist later captured a photo of a printout that one of the officers held outside of his apartment, which read facial recognition. Um, uh, query, and it had his name and his face on it. And the police later on, having done a search, uh, presumably with a facial recognition tool, posted an image of, of Derek uh, from his private Instagram, as well as a photo captured of him um, during protest. Now, uh, interestingly, in all of this, there was no charges against Eric until a little bit later when the police came back and charged him for using uh, the uh, the megaphone too closely uh, to uh, to an officer's uh, ear. And subsequently, we have, as Amnesty, reached out to the NYPD asking for information about how facial recognition is being used against BLM protesters in particular, as well as any procurement of facial recognition technology is done by the NYPD, but they have not come through with any of that information. And even following on an appeal, they rejected that appeal, and we're still we were still in the dark at, at this stage. Um, so what we did um, instead is we worked together with our group of partner organizations and used Google Street View API 
uh, to pull all of the panoramas of every street intersection in New York City. And together with the recruited 7,500 uh, volunteers from across 150 countries, we uh, were able to tag uh, cameras that plug into facial recognition uh, software. So as you can see here, this is what a, a typical screen that would be faced by a volunteer would be looking like. So volunteers would be browsing a, a, a street, an intersection, and they would tag as many cameras as they could possibly find. Now, we were able to parse through this data and having had three volunteers look at every street intersection, uh, come to a number uh, above 20,000 cameras across all of New York City, which is what you're seeing here. Some of them are private, some of them are public, and the ones that are public are the ones that plug into the facial recognition software that the NYPD runs. This scale of project and advocacy work would not have been possible if it wasn't for the fact that Amnesty was engaging with our very audience who are potentially affected by this technology um, in the actual production of the research. And it, it's led us uh, to also be able to develop a tool that gives back to, to that community insofar as any person can now go to our website and put in their address, uh, a to and from address and find out um, how much they're surveilled by these cameras along their routes. Um, we were also able to generate insights such as uh, the prevalence of facial recognition exposure in communities of color, of which there's a strong uh, correlation, as well as to show that places and people that are more subject to stop and frisk by police are also more likely to be exposed to facial recognition. In closing, this data has also been used by us um, and our partners uh, in a lawsuit against the NYPD, uh, in particular, again, emphasizing the lack of transparency in the NYPD handing over this data to us around uh, FRT usage in, in against Black Lives Matter protesters. And what we were able to uh, to get to was really a win, uh, given that the New York Supreme Court ruled in our favor and ordered the NYPD to hand over these documents to us. They have since appealed the judgment, but we believe it's on thin ground and that we will be winning the appeal as well. Um, these are just some ways that I'm suggesting that CSO should be working together with the communities that they look to serve uh, to generate interesting insights that wouldn't otherwise be um, available to us. I'm going to stop here and looking forward to the next section. Over to you, Barbara. Thank you, Matt. And um, this is an opportunity during this dialogue for um, the most sort of dialogue-y <laughs> part of the session, and that is for um, Matt and Francesca to uh, reflect and ask each other questions, things that might have come up in your introductions, um, thoughts that occurred to you. So I'm going to open it to the two of you. Francesca, do you have a question for Matt? I think you mentioned that you had worked with Amnesty International in the past, so um, there's already a connection there. Um, but thoughts or perspectives or questions that you have um, regarding what Matt shared? Well, actually, yes, because this is also something that, uh, I mean, we truly believe, and I mentioned it briefly before, about the need to have a sort of like collaborative approach when we, um, when we tackle uh, these issues. And for sure, uh, when we talk about like, for example, cyber threats, but also um, in the field of surveillance, I mean, an organization can, can do it alone. And one of the, uh, for example, one of the decisions that 
we've taken uh, with the Cyber Peace Institute was uh, first to start assisting other organizations, so not necessarily individuals, basically to have a sort of like wider, potentially a wider impact. So supporting the ones that are supporting uh, human rights defenders and individuals and so on. So that was a little bit uh, our take, but also to do this in collaboration with others. And this is why I mentioned Amnesty. I, I just wanted to 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 know from, uh, from Matt if also, I mean, how is their experience in like, for example, collaborating with the private sector? So how is the, the interaction? Because it's, it's a key actor, I think. Um, and not always, let's say, the collaboration is necessarily smooth or let's say in the same term. So I, I just wanted to, to hear your, your views on this. Oh, thank you, Francesca, and thank you for your for your wonderful presentation and for the work that you've done. I have colleagues uh, within our security lab who, who I'm sure you've worked with before. Um, and um, yeah, just to to give you an insight into how we think about, or how I, in particular, in my work, I can't speak for for everyone, have been thinking about the, the you know private actors and in particular private companies. Given that so many of them, in particular, in the space of uh, remote biometric surveillance, so facial recognition, um, are embroiled in providing those tools or in some ways not protecting themselves against potential scraping. Um, we don't engage with them from a point of view of partnership, but that is from a point of view that is potentially slightly more adversarial uh, because we believe conversations that have been taken in a form of multi-stakeholder initiatives in the past um, and you know various fora, including, for example, partnership on AI and other uh, forum um, you know, have not been very effective. And it's been tending uh, along the lines of developing AI principles or ethical principles around the use of AI. And, 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 and those oftentimes are non-committal, unenforceable rules that don't lead to companies actually changing practices. And they, they, they lead to typically superficial changes in policy that may look like they are um, prohibiting, for example, the usage of, of facial recognition. But if you if you look into it, it turns out that actually very little in the back end has changed um, to stop it. And so our approach has been more uh, one that is you know not too dissimilar to how we engage with states, which is to say issue recommendations, expose the ways in which they have led to violations, and then hope that that pressure um, potentially could lead to uh, changes in in practices. Or, you know, sometimes, as was the case with NSO as well some time ago, um, and, and will be the case for future um, 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 tech companies as well, and, and, and we're seeing now with Meta too, you know, we will sue um, where, where possible and where we have linkages. Um, um, and so, yeah, it's not one that is a, a partner-based approach, I would say, uh, just because this space hasn't really lended to us, uh, and, and I will say because of the actors being so embroiled in the violations themselves. Um, but I'm curious about your own your own approach and thinking around that. All right. So Matt, it's you and I right now. We'll right. wait until Francesca's running again. But I in listening to you, I this might this might be a silly question, um, but I'm going to ask it because I wonder if others are thinking the same thing. As you talked about um, the use of the CCTV cameras in New York and how that NYPD was using that to target Black Lives Matter protesters. Have you seen similar things? I mean, New York City is not the only city in the world that has extensive CCTV use. Places like London come to mind where the London police have often used CCTV footage um, to find criminals, but also are you seeing the use of this in other places as well? And is it... Like, are the same sorts of actions being taken 
um, with police there or what's happening in a, in a broader sense beyond New, New York? So I think one thing that's that's really important to emphasize before going into taking stock of that is that, you know, it's not that we take issue with CCTV per se. The issue is with facial recognition. And I will say that the thing about uh, CCTV is that oftentimes, especially with products that have been deployed in the last 10 to 15 years, um, you are looking at tools that really are just one software upgrade away from being uh, capable of being used with facial recognition. And given that there's very little regulation that stops police forces from using facial recognition, a lot of modern cities are vulnerable to exactly what you're saying to facial recognition and for its use with law enforcement purposes. Now, I, I also want to emphasize, and you mentioned potentially in the, in the use of capturing criminals, there's actually no data that shows that facial recognition lowers or in any way affects crime rates. And I think that's really, really important to have up front because the predominant argument that is being used by law enforcement is that facial recognition leads to lowering crime rates. But actually it's a it's a it's an experiment and it's a it's a leap of, of faith that has been sort of leaping for the last five to ten years, often promising to do more than it is actually capable of doing. Also facial recognition doesn't actually change the biases held by police. So if there's discriminatory um, uh, practices of policing happening in law enforcement, uh, units, then those are only um, those only stand to be emphasized and augmented by the use of facial recognition, which is at the disposal of these same officers that are potentially uh, acting in discriminatory ways. Now, there are other cities in which this is playing out. Uh, London is one of them, as you mentioned, where Big Brother Watch in particular has done excellent work challenging the use of both public and private facial recognition. Um, we are, have also looked at Hyderabad uh, in India, in particular in Telangana State, where we've challenged the, um, um, the setup of the command and control tower, which looks to connect thousands, upwards of 200,000 cameras across the whole state um, for use uh, with real-time facial recognition. And we're also uh, starting to look at the ways in which this potentially plays out in the occupied Palestinian territories and in other 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 states across the world. Now, this is this is a global phenomenon, and the actors are plentiful and not just based in one country either. So it is it is a difficult thing to raise the bar around, and it's a difficult thing to regulate across the world. But there is some promising signs of potential change in attitude, not least in the EU uh, AI Act, um, which is the European Union's um, uh, sort of flagship regulation on artificial intelligence, which um, in con combination with Germany's call to ban facial recognition, for example, um, uh, shows a pathway towards the elimination of the usage, um, at least in, in, in some contexts, though there are obviously always going to be exemptions um, which we will continue to fight against. Um, but yes, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, it really does because um, yeah, it's it's what came to mind in listening to you and I imagine others were probably thinking uh, similarly. So thanks for um, explaining that and broadening the scope. That's really helpful. So one question that also comes to mind is that you're working on different forms of surveillance, targeted surveillance um, by way of spyware and mass and discriminatory surveillance by way of biometrics. Are there similar solutions to keeping both at bay? Um, what's the perspective on that? From where I stand, you know, a, a, a call for a global ban on 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 both is essentially the way forward. And I think, you know, until states and in particular you know cities have played a large role at least for facial recognition in setting the standards for what a ban could look like 
Um, uh, you know, until we see those kinds of movements globally, where we're unlikely to see um, a sort of a, a shrinking of the space available uh, for uh, actors to liberally use these tools, whether it's targeted surveillance um, that, that Francesca is looking at, um, such as spyware, uh, or whether it's uh, biometric uh, surveillance like facial recognition in mind, since now Amnesty has called for a blanket ban on facial recognition technologies for identification. Um, and I know that we're also calling for a moratorium on, you know, spyware. Um, but but I'm curious to hear from Francesca and also from from folks in the in the audience as well in the chat, perhaps, um, what what their thoughts are on on how we move the lever on this. Um, from where I stand, it it's all down to prohibition. But um, but that's just me. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Ah, there you are. Lovely to see you back. So the question was that if you're since you're working on um, different forms of surveillance, targeted surveillance by way of spyware, and mass yeah. and discriminatory surveillance by way of biometrics, are there similar solutions to keeping both at bay? And Matt, of course, said prohibition on both um, was his perspective on that. And so he and we are all um, curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, actually, I think Matt already mentioned that uh, indeed the deposition has been since the very beginning for the Institute, but also joining, for example, uh, last time in May 2022, uh, so last May, we joined, for example, Access Now, the Office of the High Commissioner uh, for Human Rights, uh, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and the um, International Trade Union Confederation and Consumers International uh, to call on decision makers to take action and basically initiate indeed a moratorium, basically to limit the sale, the transfer and the use of abusive spyware until people's rights are safeguarded under international human rights law. I just want to mention something regarding what uh, Matt was mentioning when unfortunately I, I drop off. So um, I agree with you in terms of like uh, the let's say the, the relationship with the uh, private sector is not always, let's say, easy, uh, spe specifically because often they are kind of like the cause and the solution in a way of, of, of the problem. Um, what I think uh, might be a sort of like, kind of like at least our experience uh, is indeed, uh, first of all, to join forces with other civil society organizations, but also to try to establish a dialogue basically with, uh, with the private sector. I have to say that, when it comes to spyware, for example, there is also an interest from, let's say, legitimate companies in, in order, let's say, to play their role as well. And I have a practical example, and, and this is a resource, maybe I can also share it in the, in the chat. Um, we did some work uh, within a specific forum that is called the European Cyber Agora, where basically we led a multi-stakeholder group, both of civil society and uh, uh, private sector companies, in basically um, try to understand what is the role of the multi-stakeholder community in uh, um, addressing, for example, um, the uh, the spyware market and support the policymakers in understanding. One of the roles that I think the civil society can play um, is on one hand, um, basically to assume a sort of like responsible uh, position in terms of like, uh, um, informing um, their communities, partnering up with other civil society organizations that might not be that aware. And this is a little bit what, what we're doing, but also 
kind of like translating this knowledge for policymakers that are often, I mean, either not aware or they need to understand that the real impact that um, this type of uh, attacks, either cyber attacks or, for example, um, uh, targeted surveillance, um, is having on people. Because what I see, and, and I've been working in the cybersecurity, um, um, let's say, ecosystem for, for many, many years, is that often what policymakers get are kind of like numbers, numbers of attacks, damages, um, economic losses, and so on and so forth. Um, not enough, they get the real meaning of the harm that these type of measures are causing to people, to civil society organization and to individuals. So this is a bit um, the, let's say, the, the type of, let's say, the gap that we are trying to, to fill also in working with uh, um, uh, with yeah with private sector actors basically to give a little bit of more meaning um, of of what's happening uh, in 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 reality to people basically. Yeah, Matt, do you want to respond to that? You have thoughts on her response to you? <laughs> sure. Thanks. Thanks, Barb, and thanks, Francesca. I'm glad that you were able to get back on. Um, in brief. You know, I I I think there's something to be said about private sector relaying information that is useful for the context of, of advocacy, in particular for informing how we understand certain things. I think that relationship has to be managed very, very carefully. And I think from our perspective, it has often been a matter of we ask questions on the back of serious allegations and investigations into the set company, and hopefully they are either collaborative and provide us with information that attempts to refute it, but perhaps reveals more than they bargained for, or blanket refute it, in which case, you know, like there's either a case to be made for greater transparency from that comp company or even greater reason for us to continue hammering home the points that we're making. I think. The reason why I'm a little skeptical about the approach with private sector engagement or the reason why I want to emphasize being so careful with it is also because, again, so many of the um, of the industries that we're attempting to regulate, their entire economic model is one that is based on the allowance of the uses of these tools and the way that they are by states um, who, who act in semi-authoritarian ways in, in different contexts or in, in the uses by companies and other actors uh, who use these tools or, again, by law enforcement authorities who use these tools in ways that are in violation of human rights because they were designed to be in violation of human rights, because they were designed for spying. They were designed to be anti-privacy. They were designed to be tools of mass surveillance. There's nothing about their economy that is compatible with human rights. And so the idea that private sector would be involved in, in a conversation or involved in a process that is potentially, that is fundamentally looking to create a prohibitive environment for their particular market is one in which they are bound to, um, you know, take up survivalist methods and and engage with us from a position of, of, of again, uh, that is that is adversarial necessarily. So I think from my perspective, and I come at this wearing two hats, right? I've got my amnesty hat on one hand and I've got my academic hat on the other as a critical race and digital scholar. And my approach has always been like, it's 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 all about the, 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 the sort of structure that undergirds the development of these tools. And on, so long as this particular, you know, laissez-faire approach to tech development exists, so long as there is money to be made off of, you know, spying on marginalized communities, human rights defenders, et cetera, like no amount of engagement with private sector is going to get us anywhere. 
which is again why I'm 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 pushing for this prohibitive approach. But I also appreciate that getting information from the inside is tremendously helpful, which is also why you know we've we've set up channels and work with um, tech workers who are whistleblowing and who are you know siphoning information um, from inside the company, really able to engage with us on what is happening on the inside. Um, Timnit Gebru set a phenomenal precedent when she left Google. Um, and there are a number of other um, um, sort of contexts, including the No Tech for Apartheid campaign, in which um, you know other tech workers have also come out and spoken against um, the practices within their company, and, and in so doing, given us greater insight on what goes on inside these these companies. But I'll leave it there. I've been monologuing for a while. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, can you just quickly comment on this? Because actually, you mentioned something that is extremely relevant, which is the business model. And this is why, for example, we also thought, especially because there are already like there's a tremendous work done by civil society organizations when it comes, for example, to, to spyware. So we said how we can contribute. And, and for example, in January, uh, we will start specifically a project, a research project. So I will pick your brain. And if anyone in the <laughs> in the chat is willing to help, please uh, drop me a line because we will start this project on uh, analyzing the spyware market. So so trying to understand the market the dynamics, which are the incentives and uh, I mean, which are the economic leverage. And so because it's not I mean, the, the 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 market is very opaque. It's a matter of like regulatory approach, but it's also a matter of like what is happening concretely when it comes to the business model. And so this is also a way that we are trying to contribute basically in producing knowledge. And um, um, and, and, and it's extremely relevant what you mentioned about the business model, because, for example, when we were working on the uh, Cyber Agora report that I mentioned, uh, one of the our kind of like recommendation was indeed also, for example, to think about the role of investors uh, when, um, I mean, the, the role that investors can play in overseeing the practices, for example, of spyware companies that they fund. Um, and, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel, meaning that we already have, a, for example, a human rights due diligence guide for investors. We have like human rights framework that unfortunately they are not respected. So not necessarily we need kind of like invent, let's say, other tools. We need to apply what is out there. To apply what is out there, and this is where I go back to the, to the need to raise awareness, is that often people do not even know, basically, that these tools exist. And especially in, in the civil society realm, we need to um, enhance, I think, the, the knowledge in terms of like the threats that they might face, but those are the solutions that might be already out there. So I think that part of the really the advocacy is not only with different actors, like for example, policymakers or with the private sector community, but also within the community in itself. And to this point, also when 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 you were talking about like also the tools, so basically that the, the, the private sector companies are, are producing, um, I mentioned before the, the program that uh, that we have to assist other civil society organizations, the Cyber Peace Builders, by which we offer free um, cybersecurity uh, support to other civil society organizations. One of the challenges that we we, we face is that most of the tools um, that we and they are using our proprietary tools, obviously. I mean, and and also, and one of the, the things that we started discussing also with the different civil society organization is we need to have tools that are also thought with the civil society needs in mind. Taking into consideration, for example, the sensitive context um, that they are operating, 
and for example, we did a lot of work with the peace mediators. Um, so their needs might be very different from, I don't know, like organization working, uh, uh, I mean, in developing countries for, I mean, uh, uh, building uh, schools or so it's, it's really a different uh, um, type of sensitivity of, I mean, managing data, but also like uh, physical exposure to potential threats. And so we also started thinking, this is why in, in January we will launch a humanitarian cybersecurity center that is not only providing assistance, but is also developing tools together with the community for, um, I mean, better targeting uh, the, the needs of, of civil society. And then I don't know, Barbara, if we still have like say one, one minute, but I'm, I'm eager to, to hear from Matty, we still have time, like um, how you see also the kind of like capacity building angle. So I, I see there is often an issue with like financial resources for civil society organization, but often it's also a matter of like skills and getting to know that you need to, to get some skills, some, well, I would call them cyber related skills. Um, not only to better understand the ecosystem, but also to properly work. I mean, the, the everyday work. What do you think about this? Barbara, I'm just Yes, jump in, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Francesca. Um, so um, I hear you on capacity building. I think I like to use a term that, to my knowledge, was coined by Alex Dunn, which is the idea of technical intuition, as opposed to, you know, technical insight and technical knowledge. And the reason why I say that is because the the the, the idea that you must have some amount of programmatic knowledge or computer science education uh, has often tended to sort of cast this big gap between civil society and, you know, the general public, and then those who are experts in the field of um, computation, um, technology, AI, what have you. And that really serves to exacerbate the issue of apathy, right? Because if you know that there's a big gap between you and attaining the knowledge that even qualifies you to look at certain systems, then you're far less likely to engage in debates and discourses around those, those systems. And so I call it technical intuition because I don't think it requires extensive technical knowledge to understand what the impact of a system is. And I think fundamentally, there are two ways of getting there. You know, one of them is um, first of all, understanding that what we're looking to do is not necessarily expose the black box and show, look through the code and understand what the code itself says about how the system operates. I think we have to expand our definition of the black box to encompass the societal impacts that the tools has, because really the societal impacts is the nature of the tool. The tool itself doesn't matter, but when the tool is being used in practice, we really see the nature of it. And so understanding the tool phenomenologically is the best way for us to understand what the tool is. And I think anyone can look at how facial recognition is being used if you give them tools to visualize where they are and how it might be more difficult to walk around inside a protest without being exposed. Anyone can understand how spyware can be problematic if you can walk through people through the scenario of suddenly everything is being watched when you're trying to dissent against an authoritarian government. You know, there are many different scenarios that can be built up using human stories that really gets us to the technical intuition that isn't so wound up with understanding the technical system as purely a technical system, but as a socio-technical system instead. The other thing that we can do, which is partly what we're trying to do with our facial recognition work, 
is to involve volunteers and human rights supporters at large, people who care about the right to protest, people who care about racial justice, in the process of co-producing research. Because as we kind of show through the Decode Surveillance NYC project, you neither need to be a surveillance expert, not even a human rights expert. You don't need to be a technical expert in any form at all in order to be able to help us tag these cameras and then look at the impacts that it has after the fact using your data. But as you're walking through the process of actually tagging these cameras, you're also being given hints and clues about you know, why these systems are problematic in cases in which it has been used against different protesters. And these systems, the system that we use was also co-designed with the very communities that thought that their community would be potentially a little apathetical to this. Um, and so what we did was also, instead of framing this as is often the tendency in the civil society space when it comes to tech and race, instead of facing, instead of framing this as a privacy issue, we also made it very clear that this was an issue of racial justice, because you can't have racial justice along this tool that enable racial discrimination exist. And so making it more relevant to people's everyday life, tapping into that technical intuition that we know people already have, as long as they're not being told that these conversation can only be had above their heads. And then also working on ways in which people can be brought into the actual research design process, I think are effective ways in which we counter some of the things that, that you're referring to, Francesca. At least that's been my experience. I'm gonna have to stop this wonderful conversation here only so that we can, cause we're getting toward the end of our time. And there's a couple questions from um, viewers that I think are great in taking this into beyond where we've been talking and and shifting into sort of okay so then what can what can some of these civil societies do and and what are some of the action points and that would be a great place um, to finish out so first there's a question from Rand and um, he says what do you see as advocacy avenues to push for a moratorium on digital surveillance technology so if you both got thoughts I'd love to hear that briefly if one of you um, has got something really strong that they're and then we'll shift it around to the question from Susie after that um so would either of you like to take on the 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 advocacy avenues for the moratorium uh I would just maybe super briefly uh comment I mean uh um UN, 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 different forms uh, and shape. Uh, so meaning, uh, uh, for example, we are uh, very active in the, at the open-ended working group, but also thinking about uh, all the kind of like more intersectional approach and where you might have like uh, multi-stakeholder communities. And that's why before I mentioned, for example, the um, we just had in Geneva, the UN and uh, um, I mean, the uh, business, um uh, and human rights um uh meetings so all those groups where you can continue to advocate basically um as a community potentially i mean hopefully multi-stakeholder community and to a wider audience, I think uh, um, it's it's definitely an avenue. Uh, I mentioned specifically the work that we would start in January because this will also kind of like produce some knowledge that we can use uh, to uh, have even more um, evidence-led knowledge uh, to to foster the advocacy work. And uh, um, yes, so in in a nutshell, uh, continue to advocate for it at the UN and state level. Great. Um, and the other question from Susie, 
um, was, and this is shifting into AI and um, the lack of public understanding about the current and near future impact on rights. How can public awareness and engagement be increased? How can the public be brought into the design and deployment of AI and emerging technologies? So Matt, are you able to address this one? Would you like to? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, you know, certainly from a biometrics perspective, and that might be slightly different to where we sit on the targeted surveillance front via spyware. So long as the particular intervention we're looking at is citywide or city-based, I think it makes it a lot easier to tackle at that level. And so one really successful advocacy avenue that we have seen, uh, certainly in the United States, has been at the at the city level. Um, we've seen, you know, um, Portland, Oregon, uh, San Francisco. Um, we've seen uh, Cambridge and Massachusetts, um, uh, Somerville, um, regulate against facial recognition and, and really put in citywide bans of the usage of facial recognition, knowing that their cities were also, uh, you know, the host to many Black Lives Matter protests. And a lot of these bans came out on the back of that. And we also saw at New York state level, not at the city level and not comprehensively, but nevertheless, a ban on the use of facial recognition at schools, which is also, again, um, really crucial given the changing discourse towards the use of facial recognition to somehow stop or find, you know, individuals um, who carry uh, guns and 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 potentially engage in, uh, in gun violence. Now, we all know that the issue of gun violence is one that's uh, uh, sort of reached uh, an interesting point in the United States where, of course, the issue is the regulation of of, of of guns and ammunition and not so much, you know, do we use technology to solve the issue because the issue won't go away so long as uh, the uh, so long as as uh, folks are around uh, are allowed to carry carry arms. But that's that's a different story entirely. It's just to 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 highlight the fact that there tends to be a, a sort of a solutionist approach to thinking about technology as a panacea that can you know solve a lot of a lot of the issues um that that we're dealing with at the societal level but yeah i think city city citywide advocacy has tended to be what we've seen as the most effective and frankly we've seen less effective engagement at the international level and through international organizations and i think the eu ai act is the first space in which we might see some advances on this front as as i mentioned before as well Okay, thanks. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up here. Um, I know that we really hit a great stride and that's what you can always feel uh, <laughs> in the great dialogues that once you get through um, that you could find yourself talking for another 30 minutes. But um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Francesca and Matt, for joining us today and for inspiring us and giving us um, new perspectives, maybe um, to think about what, what all of this has to do with us and, and action points that we can take. Um, thank you so much to the International Sign Interpreters and our captioner for their work. Um, I know there were some glitches. Day, you've been a champion, so thank you so much um, for hanging in there. And um, thanks to all of you who joined us from around the world. Um, all of the dialogues from 2022 are now available as videos and audio on the center's YouTube and podcast channels.